In preparation for Yuri's sermon, we'll be reading two passages, Isaiah 62, verses 10 to 12, and 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 2. Isaiah 62 is on page 725 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah 62, verse 10. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your Savior comes, see, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. In Second Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 2, it's on page 1121 of your pew Bibles. Second Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Dear God, I thank you for the word that you have placed on Yuri's heart, the word that you have given us in your scripture. May we listen attentively. May you speak to us and work in us as, as Yuri delivers what you have put in his heart. May we approach your scripture with humility. May we be ready and willing to learn and let your word and your will do its work in our lives. Pray for peace and calmness as Yuri speaks. Amen. Thank you, Brother Riley. How encouraging it is to have Riley with us now, I think, on a regular basis. What an amazing contribution he and Isela make to our young adults group. I'm so grateful for you guys and so thankful to God for bringing you together. Well, as I mentioned before, this is going to be a bit of a long message. And part of that is because this is a very personal message for me. As I mentioned last week, I'm going to be talking about young people turning away from the church, turning away from the Lord, and that is my story when I left high school and went to university. So in a way, I've been preparing for this message my whole life, um, but really... Uh, this is the fruit of about three or four years of study when I've been intensely thinking about youth ministry here at Bethesda Church. In the message, you'll hear an exposition part where I'll, we'll be talking about uh, the passage that uh, Riley just read from Isaiah. Um, I'll be citing a lot of statistics, and I'll hopefully give you some help with uh, PowerPoint. Um, I'll be talking a lot about history as well, the history of evangelism over the last couple hundred years. And then finally, at the end of the message, I'll make application for us today. And in the middle, as I said, we'll take a break to worship God together. 
Well, last week, as I said, we returned to the book of Isaiah, to these last three verses of chapter 62. And as I said, this is the climax and the culmination of a pivotal passage in the book of Isaiah, really a pivotal passage in the whole Bible. And I say pivotal because indeed chapters 60 to 62 of Isaiah are a pivot point, a hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean that these are the words that Jesus himself claimed and made his own as he began his ministry here on earth. He appropriated the words from the beginning of chapter 61, of course, about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him, anointing him to preach good news to the poor. But those words are in the middle of a longer passage. This longer passage is all about the redeemed city of Zion, which, as I said last week, is the spiritual reality of the people of God. Zion is the location where we dwell with Jesus, where we dwell in Jesus, a reality that is more sure and more certain than the reality that we can see and touch. Jesus claimed when he read that little portion of this passage that this reality, this Zion reality, on that very day 2,000 years ago, among those very hearers, had now come to pass. He was saying that wherever Zion is, he is. Wherever he is, Zion is. And so wherever Jesus is, these words about Zion are manifest. These words about Zion are brought into being. I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to the exposition of these last couple of verses today, because despite what I just said, despite the fact that it is correct that wherever Jesus is, these words are true and brought into being, we have difficulty accepting that truth, of seeing how they are being brought into being. Because the fact is, we often don't seem to experience them very much. Has God truly made proclamation to the ends of the earth? Do we believe that his reward is with him? And what of the nations who have traveled along the highway to Zion, that would be us, by the way, who have joined the people of God in Zion? Do we appear to be the holy people? Does it seem plausible to us that this church, Bethesda Church, the gathering of his called out ones on this corner should be called sought after? That in this building right here, right now on an August long weekend, we should be known as the city no longer deserted? Look around. Does this seem plausible to you? You see, there is a flip side to the hopeful prophecies given here. What we find in verse 12, 
comes about as a result of doing what the Lord commands in verse 11. What we find in verse 12 comes about as a result of doing what the Lord commands in verse 11. That should be obvious. He declares to the ends of the earth that some person or some people are to say something. Now, a few questions may be in order to clarify what he means by this. First, who is he talking to? Who is the Lord talking to? Who is supposed to say something? Well, the rest of the passage, he is talking to Zion. So it would seem that all Zion, the whole people of God, is commanded to say something. Well, who are we supposed to say it to? That's even more obvious, although it does sound a little funny. Zion is supposed to say something to the daughter of Zion. Now, this may seem a little odd, since Zion and the daughter of Zion are basically the same thing. So, Zion is supposed to say something to herself? But when you know what Zion is, this is not that weird. The commandment is for the people of God to say something to one another. Indeed, we are to continually, perpetually preach these things to one another. Well, what is it that we're supposed to say? Again, this is spelled out. Zion is commanded to say to Zion... The people of God are commanded to say to one another, Behold, your Savior comes. And to behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. So far, so good. So far, so obvious. Now, as we obey the Lord's commandment, God's global proclamation... Verse 12 becomes operative. As we obey the Lord's commandment, verse 12 becomes operative. And that is, they will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. Now, who's being talked about here? Of course, you refers to Zion, the people of God, and they refers to all who will join Zion, who will put their trust in the Savior who is coming. So that means people who are not yet the people of God in Isaiah's time and in our time. And as we know, we are those very people. We are those who at one time were not the people of God, but we are now God's people. We are a fulfillment of this prophecy. We are now part of Zion because the people of God kept this commandment. They didn't abandon the hope that the Savior was coming, but they encouraged one another to look for his appearing. People like Simeon, people like Anna, people like Mary, people like Zacharias. And then when Jesus came, they talked about him. And those people told us 
about him. Now, one of the words that we didn't talk about last week is this word recompense. Recompense at the end of verse 11. It's actually a word that you would normally translate as work. The word work, because it works in parallel with the previous phrase. It's usually understood to be a kind of payment like the reward, which is why we have it translated as recompense. So his recompense accompanies him as a parallel phrase, can be understood as a kind of repetition of the idea that his reward is with him. His reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. And that's all fine. But many scholars consider that there's something lost if we translate it in this way. Because accompanies him would probably be better if it were translated as before him, since it literally means in front of his face. His work is before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. So we are commanded by God to say to one another that our Savior is coming, that his reward is with him, and that his work is before him. This work also being a kind of due. Now this would seem to imply that the Savior, Jesus, has some unfinished business with us, some work to accomplish. He is saving us, yes, He is filling and fulfilling us as he gives us more of himself as we experience the reward that is with him. Yes, but there is work still for him to do. The work, the recompense, is bringing to pass this promise in verse 12. But the trouble is that not everyone in Zion... In fact, few in Zion, if you're talking about us, keeps the commands of God that we find here in these verses. Not many speak what it is that God has told them to say. Some of us keep this simple message about the Savior and his reward to ourselves, maybe because we think it's so simple that it's not worth repeating the Savior's coming. Or we'll complicate it, maybe thinking that we can improve on it or make it more relevant to our lives. Whatever the case, the flip side of this prophecy is that if we don't say what we are commanded to say, then the promise of verse 12 will not come about. The they in verse 12 will not experience the blessing of being called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. No, they will not be called holy at all. They will remain the corrupt and common people. They will not be redeemed at all, drawn by the Lord to himself. They will remain enslaved and alone. Moreover, you, Zion, the church, will not be called sought after. You will be ignored and irrelevant. You will remain deserted. You will be known as the abandoned wasteland. 
And is this not where we are today in North America? Is this not how we feel? Is this not why we have difficulty believing that this prophecy is about Zion, is about right now, is about us? Is this not why we start to wonder if Jesus might not be among us? Is this not why we start to wonder if he doesn't want to or isn't able to keep his promises? I don't need to tell you that the church across North America is in the middle of a crisis. We've never seen anything like this. There have been serious problems in the past, of course, but never before in one or two generations have the churches emptied the way that they have over the past 30 years. Never before has church membership plummeted this fast. Never before have personal devotions like prayer fallen off so dramatically. Now, it doesn't really matter which of those metrics that you choose to look at, since they're only rough measures of what's happening in people's hearts anyway, of course. But they all point in the same direction. According to a poll conducted last fall, less than half of the U.S. population attends church once a month. But what's even more worrying is only half of those who attended church monthly as kids still do so. That means that if the trend continues, most of the kids who attend church now will not attend church as adults. This corresponds to another major trend, which is known as the rise of the nuns. That is, people who say they don't belong to any religion. For people aged 18 to 35, this tendency took off in the 1990s. As you can see on this graph, in that gray part in the middle, that's from 90 to about 2000. And the top line is the loss of Christian faith, and the, un, the line underneath the red one is the claim that they don't believe in anything. Well, another large American polling firm has projected all of these trends into the future. Now, in all, these are four different various models, but in all of these models, those lines get a lot closer together, which is the number of Christians goes down, the number of unaffiliated goes up, and in some of those scenarios, you can see that they even cross over. That is, by 2070, the number of Christians in the U.S. may fall below 50%, and the number of nuns will approach or exceed half the population. Unfortunately, in Canada, the situation is worse. In fact, one Canadian poll from last November found that only one in four Manitobans had attended a religious service in the previous three months. And most of those people would have been over the age of 75, at least according to the most recent Canadian census. Over the last 20 years, 
In every age demographic, the percentage of people who attend services at least once a month has dropped off. And between 2004 and 2019, the share of people under the age of 70 who attended at least one service a month went down from 25% to 15%. And the group with the sharpest decline were the millennials born in the 80s, 1980s. Of this group, only 24 were attending one service a month in 2004, and that number was cut in half by 2019. And it's not just that they're going to church less. Over the same period, fewer and fewer Canadian millennials engaged in any type of private devotion. Near the beginning of the 21st century, the census tells us that about one in three millennials spent any time in what it calls individual spiritual activity, like prayer. Twenty years later, it seems the number had become less than one in five. In every age demographic, personal devotions fell, but again, millennials had one of the steepest rates of decline, and they had already started at the lowest level to begin with. Now, the younger generation, younger than millennials, born after 1999, commonly known as Gen Z, was too young to be included in the Canadian census, but one recent American survey called Gen Z the most non-Christian generation in American history. And that description is not so much a statement about their spiritual practices, although it does reflect that. It's not intended, certainly, as a judgment against the younger generation. It's just a statement about influence. They're non-Christian because Christianity has had little to do with their formation. It's not that they haven't heard about Jesus at all, but they have had very few opportunities to truly encounter him, to hear who the Bible says that he is, to actually know any Christians whose lives have been transformed by him. Now, you're looking a little bit depressed, And I know that it's usually at this point that a preacher will make a rousing appeal. He'll say that we just have to work harder and more creatively. We have to redouble our efforts to reach the youth of today for Christ. But I've not been detailing these bitter truths in order to shock you into a misguided reaction. It isn't my intention to shame anyone any more than it is to make you depressed. I don't want you to feel despair. The passage I've chosen to preach on should tip you off that this is ultimately a hopeful message. But I also don't want to provoke a knee-jerk activism, because that way of thinking is exactly what has produced the disaster that we are now witnessing. We've had over 75 years of intense outreach to youth. After the Second World War, the whole paradigm for evangelism changed. The strategy was to rebrand the Christian life. As one of the leaders of the post-war youth movement put it, 
it's a sin to bore the kid, bore a kid with the gospel. I'm sure you've heard that before. At Saturday night youth rallies and concerts filled with entertainments, the abundant life was pitched as a life full of fun and games, a non-stop party that was not your parents' religion. Christianity was increasingly sold as just an alternative, a cleaned-up version of worldly culture. For nearly everything that the world had on offer, a Christian version could be manufactured and sold. Now, some of you, maybe even many of you, will have come to Christ as a result of those efforts, and for that we should all rejoice. But in terms of exalting God's word and advancing his long-term work in North America, in terms of being the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, this human-centered, people-pleasing, youth-obsessed approach has utterly failed. The statistics speak for themselves. But even more damning about these statistics is that amid all the hoopla and as a direct result of the salesmanship, at least as many as came to faith lost theirs. Those who saw the show saw through it and longed for something of substance, something to really believe in, something of lasting value and not a cheap imitation, those people turned their backs on Christ and his church. Now, one of the architects of the post-war approach was the Canadian evangelist Chuck Templeton, or Charles Templeton, who everyone thought had much more potential even than Billy Graham, He was dubbed religion's super salesman by a swooning secular press that was overwhelmed by his smooth style and Hollywood looks. He was billed as someone who could tackle the so-called man-sized task of soul-saving with his man-sized assets. Of course, he was only the most popular of many who turned Jesus into a commodity. And to be fair, Templeton did not use Jesus to make himself rich. One of the things that made him so likable, in fact, was his scrupulous honesty. And most of his peers were just as well-meaning. They just saw good salesmanship as the most effective way to spread the gospel in modern times. But Templeton saw through the emptiness of it all. And after a decade of inner turmoil, he turned his back on Jesus Christ in 1957 after almost 20 years of Christian ministry. This despite the fact that his wild success was unprecedented. He preached in person to one and a half million people every year and to millions more on TV and radio. His unbelief grew despite the fact that he had witnessed many things that he could not explain. But he was tortured by doubt. In an age of supermen, Jesus was to him only a man, maybe the most super of supermen, but still no more than human. 
Templeton's deconstruction of his faith was devastating for those who had come to trust in Christ through his ministry. But he was only the canary in the coal mine. The new strategies got young people coming to church, certainly, and church attendance, which had been lagging before the war, saw a spike. It even kept the youth interested for a while. As youth culture changed, so the kinds of fun and games that were offered to them also had to change. Youth ministry became about chasing this moving target that is youth culture. In the 1980s, evangelical churches saw a spike in attendance as they benefited from the evacuation of the mainline denominations. There was a time in Canada, you may not believe it, but some of you will remember, there was a time in Canada when there were many people attending the United Church who actually believed the Bible. But as that group within the United Church was scorned and abandoned by their own clergy, they found that they were forced to go elsewhere. They put down roots in Bible-believing churches like Bethesda. And we welcomed them with open arms. Roy Allen was just telling me just last week, it wasn't that long ago that Bethesda was packed every Sunday. But as we have already seen in the 90s, young people started leaving in droves. And as I mentioned earlier, I was one of them. When I went to university in 93, I left the church behind. Now, I would have cited all the usual misinformed and superficial problems. How can a good God allow suffering? How can you believe in miracles in an age of science? How can anyone believe the Bible when it's so full of mistakes, not to mention all the barbaric behavior and socially backward attitudes it seems to advocate? And so on and so on and so on. But really, I just wanted to live my life how I wanted to live it, without interference. And at that point, I didn't encounter any compelling reasons not to. I didn't see anything in the church that felt more meaningful than what I saw out in the world. And if I'm being brutally honest, church culture seemed altogether less meaningful, less real than the shallow arts world that was seducing me. One gifted young evangelical turned atheist recently boiled this all down. And she identifies what I think is the nub of the problem. She grew up in Saugatuck, Michigan, in the 90s, as an enthusiastic Christian kid, going to church and youth group as often as she could, binging contemporary Christian music and fangirling on artists like Carmen and DC Talk, attending yearly Bible camps hosted by Answers in Genesis, where she learned to fiercely defend her sincere young earth creationism, participating in all the big youth events that have exploded in number and intensity since those early rallies in the post-war years. And then after high school, she moved to Chicago to go to Moody Bible Institute. And that's where her faith fell apart. In 2002, in her second year of Bible college. And it wasn't because of anything she learned in class. It wasn't because she was tempted by the vices of big city living. 
It wasn't because of anything outside of Christianity itself. This is how she put it. When I stopped being a Christian, it wasn't because being a believer made me uncool or outdated or freakish. It was because being a Christian no longer meant anything. She goes on, The gospel became just another product someone was trying to sell me. The church has forfeited, she says, the one advantage it had in the game to attract disillusioned youth. Authenticity. If Christian leaders weren't so ashamed, they might have something more attractive than anything that's on today's bleak moral market. And she concludes, in the meantime... They've lost one more kid in the competition. When Paul speaks of not being ashamed of the gospel, we usually assume that he's talking about preaching boldly in the marketplace of ideas, not caring what anyone thinks of him. And to a certain extent, that's true. But more fundamentally, he in himself is not ashamed of it. He believes that the gospel is all that you need. Or as he put it elsewhere, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, post-war evangelists like Chuck Templeton were perfectly happy to preach Jesus Christ as long as that meant that Jesus was some kind of larger-than-life superhero who saves you from a lifetime of boredom and drudgery. But the idea of crucifixion That in order to save us, he needed to be put to death? Well, this brings us to that awkward and unwelcome truth that we all deserve to go to hell. And Templeton himself later admitted that he never believed that. And with that, we're coming to an earlier part of the story, and although I know this has been already a long story, I think it's an essential part of the story since it paved the way for that post-war strategy and the ultimate collapse that we're seeing today. But before we continue, I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship the Lord with another song together. Oh, Lord God, these things are heavy and hard to take, And it's a warm sanctuary, and the pews are hard. Lord God, give us the hearts to hear, the resilience of mind to perceive, and the desire for more and more of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The people that we know as Puritans were nonconformists of various stripes. Most were what we would call Anglicans or Presbyterians, although there were quite a few Baptist Puritans as well. They were persecuted in England, and so some of them decided to venture across the Atlantic with the hope of establishing a purer church in America. While that hope was a bit of a pipe dream, that was their motivation. And that motivation helps to explain the next slide, which demonstrates a surprising truth. 
In early America, only a small minority of people became members of churches. As the graph shows, this situation didn't change for 150 years. And these figures are pretty solid because although they didn't bother to keep statistics on church attendance in those days, the membership rules were carefully maintained. Now, from 1800 onwards, you can see church membership rose steadily for the next 200 years. If this seems counterintuitive, that's because it is. The reason they didn't bother to keep attendance back in the days of the Puritans was because nearly everyone who could go to church did go to church. They didn't keep count of the numbers because humans don't usually pay much attention to behavior that's nearly universal. To miss church was the exception, not the rule. But the Puritans knew that this church-going habit did not mean that everyone was actually converted. That is, that the Holy Spirit had taken up residence in their hearts, had brought them from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Puritans knew that there were all kinds of reasons that a person might go to church that don't necessarily include belonging to Christ and living for him alone. They understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified goes against every natural instinct. That this message is foolishness and a stumbling block to most people, even if they believe that Jesus is God. The Puritans took seriously that Je- what Jesus himself had warned in the Sermon on the Mount. That many will say to me on that day, Lord... Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So for the Puritans, the honor of church membership was given to people who clearly showed that they belonged to Jesus, who were obviously the redeemed of the Lord, who they could be confident were citizens of that greater reality known as Zion, the city no longer deserted. Church membership for the Puritans had nothing to do with whether someone was wealthy or popular or had some other form of earthly status. They didn't care about those kinds of corrupt worldly standards. In fact, they were the very reason that they left England. So even after a massive spiritual revival that we call the Great Awakening, which was an indisputable movement of God, even after that, the share of church members in the population went down not up. Why? Because the standards of godliness had been raised. Clearly, in the 1800s, something changed. Church membership started to mean something other than what it had meant earlier. A movement had been afoot for a while to change what it means to be a Christian. 
That movement was diverse and complex, but two men in particular were hugely influential in the change that took place in the U.S. during the 1800s, and by extension, Canada as well. And you could say pretty fairly that these two men epitomized the change that was going on. These two men were Charles Finney and Horace Bushnell. Finney is still revered in many Christian circles, so you may have heard of him. He's revered for the practical innovations that he made in evangelism, which he called his new measures. Now, Bushnell is not known anymore, but in his day, he was famous as much for his sensitivity as for his theological innovations. Finney was as terrifying as he looks. (laughs) He did not believe that your sins were forgiven once and for all through faith in Christ, but that living a holy life meant living a life of total moral perfection. He invented what we now know as the altar call. He called it the anxious bench, as the occasion when you could be made right with God in a gathering of God's people. His practical innovations stemmed from the fact that he did not believe in original sin or in the substitutionary atonement of Christ's sacrifice. That is, he did not believe that Jesus' blood redeemed you from slavery to sin. Strangely enough, a lot of people at the time found Finney's moralism very appealing With the Puritans, the proof that you were a Christian were things that were really hard to quantify, like humility or joy. But under Finney's system, you just had to show that you were a moral person, and you went to the anxious bench occasionally when you felt that you had sinned. Also, pastors learned that they could rely on Finney's new measures, his revivalism, which we now think of as old-time religion which was emotionally manipulative tent meetings, which they held at regular intervals to whip the locals up into a fervor and, as an added bonus, bring in a little more money for the local church. Now, Bushnell was quite a different character. He disliked revivalism, but that was more a matter of character than theology. He was with Finney, absolutely, in rejecting the idea that Jesus' blood pays for our sins. It's actually not certain what he actually did think, since he was deliberately vague about a lot of things. He didn't believe in putting theology into precise words. His big motivation was to make Christianity more palatable to Unitarians, which was a heretical sect who reject the doctrine of the Trinity and who had a lot of pull in New England at that time. Bushnell was very popular. He was famous throughout the United States despite this weak and vague theology. Actually, even though no one remembers him now, his ideas became popular and remained popular to this day precisely because they chip away at the conviction that theology is important. One assessment from a Bushnell fan summed up his influence this way. He changed the point of view, and thus he changed not only everything, but pointed the way toward unity. 
Unfortunately, this so-called unity was a unity of hazy platitudes and unfocused argument that, although it might have changed everything, didn't actually achieve what it set out to do, which was to evangelize people. As the 19th century progressed, the confidence and ambitions of North Americans grew. The Puritan work ethic remained, but without much of the humility that their Puritan ancestors had cultivated. Church membership, instead of being a way of assessing who was truly a citizen of Zion, became a status symbol, an indicator of moral achievement, the gateway to full participation in polite society, the opposite, in other words, of what the Puritans wanted. That is why, while moral standards were maintained in many circles in the 1800s, being a church member didn't necessarily mean that you attended church. And people slowly drifted away. Most scholars agree that weekly church attendance hovered around 80% in early America. When social scientists actually started measuring attendance in the early part of the 20th century, it had fallen to somewhere between 30 and 40%. In Canada, the situation was much better, actually. Church attendance was higher than in the U.S. before the war. Before World War II, around 70% of English Canadians attended church every week. Now, the irony is that over the past 200 years, as church membership rose in the U.S., peaking in 1990 at 70%, church attendance fell, and as you can see, just a little blip upwards toward the end of the 20th century. The most important question we have to answer is, why? Why did this happen in North America? What is the explanation for the ongoing collapse of Christian religion in our part of the world? Well, the conventional, modern, secular response is that this is all inevitable. That ancient myths have no relevance in a technologically advanced society built on scientific laws. But this explanation is not only simplistic, it's ridiculously outdated. While atheism was once assumed to be the natural endpoint of science, in many parts of the world today, including some at the leading edge of research and technology, like Taiwan and China, Christian faith is growing rapidly. As we know very well from our missionaries and from our KCW friends, South Korea is another technologically advanced society with very large numbers of strongly committed Christians. And the story is the same in many parts of the developing world. In fact, the most recent global statistics tell us that the share of convinced atheists around the globe is falling. So if the conventional secular explanation is not adequate, what about the one that we all assume to be the case, that we just haven't worked hard enough in North America, that Christians haven't been creative enough or poured enough energy and resources into youth programs? Well, by now, it should be clear that that is definitely not the case. 
So what is it? There are two simple reasons, as I see it. The first is that we are experiencing, the North American church is experiencing the judgment of God. And the second is related to that, which is that we, and by we I mean us, all of us here in this room and many others like us worshiping around North America this morning, have stopped believing God's word. That is, we have stopped believing in preaching and living by the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We do not believe God's promises. We do not believe that Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough of a message because we don't think deeply enough of it or often enough of it. We don't believe that Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough of a method because we don't have the radical faith that's required to pursue it. We don't believe that Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough of a reason because it seems unattractive to us. We don't believe, God forgive us, that Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough of a reward. Where do I get the idea from our text that we're under God's judgment? First, from the phrase, his recompense is before him. Jesus, through Isaiah, says that God himself has made proclamation to the ends of the earth about what it is we are called to do. There's hardly a more forceful way of telling us that we are to say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your Savior comes. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him, or his work is before him. Remember, your Savior comes is the word we are to preach to Zion, to ourselves. It's a word, he is a Savior that we have become bored with, thinking that that, that simple message is just for the lost. But this passage tells us that it is for us. If we manage to bore a kid with the gospel, it's not because there's anything wrong with the message. It's because there is something in the messenger, a part of him or her, that just doesn't get it, doesn't live, doesn't sleep, doesn't eat and breathe the gospel. We need to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to ourselves and to one another day in and day out until we do get it, until we get the beauty of it, until we get the nourishment from it. And once we do, we will find ourselves feasting on it for all eternity. We just won't be able to help ourselves we will desire more and more of Jesus and what he has done for us. The more we add to the gospel, the more we take away from it. The less effective it will be, the more relevant we try to make it. 
We need to remember that the gospel is literally impossible for fallen human beings, for dead souls, dry bones, to embrace. Apart from the resurrecting work of the Spirit of God, no matter how you dress it up, the gospel, if it is the true gospel, will always repel people, will always leave a bad taste to the natural man. This is why Paul says that we are like the smell of death to those who are perishing. It's why, as we heard Riley read earlier, that as we share the good news, we must renounce secret and shameful ways and deception. It is why we do not dare distort the word of God, but set the truth forth plainly. We do not dare do it because a few people may actually believe the false way that we preach, since it will be more attractive to the natural man than the true gospel. And then they will remain the opposite of what Isaiah prophesies outside of Zion. They will stay the corrupt people, chained to their passions and their pleasures, enslaved by the devil, and we will be responsible for their eternal suffering. We dare not do it. Because as we have discovered today, in the end, false ways will be shown to be a waste of time. And our ministries will eventually crash and burn. So we dare not do it because we will become the opposite of Isaiah's prophecy. Man-sized, human-centered churches are not Zion. And so they become an abandoned wasteland. For those who reject him, who do not believe his word, destruction is also the recompense that accompanies Jesus, the work that goes before him. So in the end, after all this exposition, after all these statistics, after all this history and theology, what is to be done What can we do to stem the disaster for our children? Are they truly, like, gone, gone? No. No, because Isaiah's message, the Bible's message, is ultimately hopeful. Jesus Jesus decreed that they will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. He has made proclamation to the ends of the earth that we will be called sought after. The city no longer deserted. But to get there, we must reject all the man-sized approaches of the past 200 years. Even if we didn't have the words of Scripture, we can now confidently show that they have been a complete failure a total and utter disaster for the North American church. Well, most churches, as we know, are still chasing after youth with these false ways, still doubling down on them, still hoovering up impressionable youth and young families from smaller churches that don't have the resources to field the insane youth programming. And I call them insane, not because I think the people aren't well-intentioned and well-meaning, and I'm not calling the people insane, 
but the programs themselves are insanely expensive, insanely time-consuming and energy-consuming. And they fit the definition of insanity, which is repeating the same failed experiment while expecting a different result, time after time after time. So that's the negative side. Avoiding, choosing to steer away from the same old mistakes. We know this as repentance. Turning. Turning away from our human ways, turning toward God and his ways. But how should we steer? What, what else can we do? Have faith in God. The reason why I think Isaiah is the ideal book to preach from on this topic, to address this collapse, is that it is precisely the situation that Isaiah found himself in. Isaiah lived about 300 years after the founding of the ancient nation-state of Israel. He grew up in a bubble, a time of stability and prosperity that masked a looming disaster. He was a historian who literally wrote the book on the long reign of the king who oversaw that period of affluence until the king's spiritual pride brought about his downfall. When Isaiah became an adult, his country kind of started to fall apart a bit. First, one enemy invaded, and then another. But while the countryside was a smoldering ruin, God preserved Jerusalem, preserved Zion. But even as he ministered during those contemporary crises, Isaiah saw an even greater destruction looming. He predicted that Jerusalem would be completely obliterated and that the whole population would either be killed or exiled. And that's exactly what happened just a couple generations after he died. But Isaiah's vision went much farther beyond even that horrific middle distance. Isaiah predicted that the society, the way of life that he and his family knew and loved would come to an abrupt end. But as he scanned the horizon, he could see something infinitely more glorious than the old city of David. He could see the Savior coming. He could see the King of Zion resurrected. The faith that Isaiah had the trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified must be ours as well. If we embrace it, if we refuse to be ashamed of it to ourselves, we just might have something more attractive than anything on today's bleak market. Having repented of man-sized methods and embraced this God-sized faith If we truly want to see the next generation reached, we need to give ourselves over to fervent prayer. Do we really believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Do we understand yet that the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified is simply foolishness to the natural mind? If so, it's obvious that he is the one who must act. He is the only one who can. 
And this is another part, incidentally, a vital part of preparing the way for the people and removing the stones that we read in verse 10. Do you really care about the future of the church? Does it bother you that Gen Z is the most non-Christian generation? Then you need to be praying daily for them. You need to be meeting weekly or even more often with like-minded people to do it more powerfully together. Just a few verses earlier in this chapter of Isaiah, we read these words. Verse 6, you who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Men, I'm calling you out. Why is it that only a handful of you come out on Thursday mornings to pray? Do you not care about our kids? Do you not care about this church? Do you not care about your world? Or do you not believe? Do you not believe that he can and he will act when his people pray? I love that we have continued our Wednesday night prayer meetings over the summer and started a monthly Saturday morning men's prayer meeting as well. But surely this must only be a place to start. Why limit ourselves? This is time spent with the Savior, the King, the one who has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Behold, his reward is with him. Not with us. With our puny strategies and resources? Behold, his recompense is before him. We limit our time with him. We limit the potential of our prayers to our own detriment. Two more brief points and then I'll be done. As we reject failed human strategies... As we put our trust in the Lord and his promises, as we give ourselves over to unceasing prayer for our next generation, we must live holy lives. By this, I don't mean the kind of moralistic purity culture of Finney or of the post-war fundamentalists. Certainly, we ought to shun what passes for entertainment in this world. But I'm talking about being the holy people mentioned here in Isaiah. Those who find their reward in the Savior himself. Holiness is Christ in me, as the song we just sang says. We find our reward in him so we don't need to go looking for some Christian knockoff of worldly culture. I mean, the older saints, you who are listening to me today, engaging with the young intentionally, one-on-one or in small groups, discipling them, showing them the profound excitement that comes when Jesus has redeemed you, letting the kids know that they are not abandoned, that the church is not a wasteland, but they are truly sought after by you, And by Jesus himself. 
to let them know that they too may be citizens of the city, not forsaken. And finally, in order to turn, in order to trust, in order to pray, in order to live holy lives, we need to restore preaching to the place of honor that this passage implies it ought to have. Now, I realize you might find this a little ironic, making this point the very last point in a very long sermon, but that is actually the point. We have seen how from the time of the Puritans until now, the church has become something that people found less and less relevant to their eternal destiny and more and more a place to make social connections that they can either take or leave, whatever. But the church in the time of the Puritans was a place, the main place, to meet with God, to worship God, and to hear from God. The Puritans understood from their intense study of the scriptures that it was when the word was preached that God promised to make it most effectual. To preach was the highest calling, the greatest adventure, the most daunting challenge, the most humbling undertaking that anyone could possibly imagine. And both the preachers and the congregations approached the preaching of God's word with deadly seriousness, with awe and with dread, knowing that it was God himself who made proclamation to the ends of the earth, commanding the preachers to say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. His reward is with him. If we restore preaching to its rightful place, if the preacher prepares in holy fear, with prayer being the most important part of his preparation, since he knows that it is only the Spirit of God who can speak to, to let alone change anyone's heart, if the congregation, if you, Bethesda, prepare yourselves, if you pray for the preacher as he prepares, if you come in faith expecting to hear from God through the mouth of a frail and sinful man who is simply committed to preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, we will see a miracle happen here. It has happened before, and God will make it happen again. Are they like gone, gone? Only if we continue to limit ourselves to our man-sized vision and keep on doubting God's promises. Let's pray. Lord,
Make us humble. Make us tremble at your word. That we may be transformed by this word that is so opposite to our natural desires. That a gentle person who would never raise his voice can yell from the pulpit is evidence that your spirit can move us to do things we wouldn't expect. Oh Lord God, we long to reach our kids who've turned their back on you. Oh God, I cannot explain why you revealed yourself to me finally. Why you laid hold of my heart. Why you dealt with me. And caused me to go in a direction that I never would have wanted, let alone imagined. But Lord, if you can do a miracle in my life, you can do a miracle in the lives of our loved ones who are lost. You can do a miracle in this church. Lord God, it's not vanity that is bothered when I see empty pews because I know that I'm preaching to the heavenlies to the spiritual forces that are all around us to angels as well as to demons who cry out in terror at the name of Jesus Christ and him crucified Lord, bring us to repentance. Help us to trust in you. Kindle a fire of prayer in our hearts. Make us holy in your Son. And help us to rediscover the word preached. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our benediction is also from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, 
who acts for those who wait for him. If you want to talk to me, I'll just be sitting here on the front pew. It's not an anxious bench, (laughs) Uh, but I'll just take a little bit of time to pray. Uh, But I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Please go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus, Savior.